Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. It's really a pleasure to have you with us today as we embark on another uh, program that talks about the things that are really important in this world and in this life. Uh, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Our guest today, and I'll get into all of the other particulars later on, but our guest today, he is uh, both a publisher as well as an author. We're going to talk a little bit about that, especially considering that yours truly is trying to get his book uh, finished <laughs> and then published. It's uh, Michael or Mike Strickler. He is a highly gifted, best-selling author, publisher, producer, philanthropist, and he's internationally sought after conference speaker as well. His best-selling book, uh, which is, um, I think it's pronounced Cliver Bundy, uh, American Terrorist Patriot. Okay, interesting connection. Uh, quickly made the bestseller list, and he's got several other works uh, as well as his latest, which is Life Without a Reservation. And uh, we want to welcome him. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard, for having me. There's a certain, uh, certain element of familiarity here, only because I have a brother named Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have a, we have a, 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 a cosmic connection, you and I. Hey, <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. Now, you are uh, both a publisher and an author. Uh, is that because you published your own works, or did you have uh, another company until you started your publishing uh, to do that for you? So I've been writing since 2000. In fact, you know, Richard, if you and I had met on an airplane, I would, I would introduce myself as a publisher, mm -hmm. uh, excuse me, as an author, because I see myself more as an author than anything else. I've, uh, I've written 19 books, four of which were bestsellers. The other 15 are books that got me the learning experience that I needed to be able to get to the bestseller categories. And, um, and so I love to write. And what happened was, is I got into publishing when uh, a book I had called Journey to Generosity, it, uh, I was trying to get it get some traction with it it was with a traditional publisher at that time back in 2013 and and they were doing it nothing was happening they weren't selling it they weren't marketing it, it they got it into print form but i needed that book sold and so i wrestled my book away from them i actually had to pay him to get the book back and then i went into trying to figure out how to publish them and once i got going and i learned where people are buying books and um, how people are, uh, what they're looking for in a book. Um, I kind of really kind of drilled in and, and with no intention whatsoever of starting a publishing firm, I started a publishing firm called Leadership Books. And now we have about 200, I'm sorry, 2,200 um, SKUs on our site, of books from all over the world in the, in the leadership space. Well, the, that's an, a subject that I'd like to touch upon uh, for this program as well as other subjects in terms of your other, uh, your other works and where you're coming from and how you've gotten to where you are today. But leadership, the qualities of leadership are, uh, there is no question in my mind anyway, they're being challenged these days by virtue of, <laughs> of, of some of the leaders uh, that yes. we have uh, in various quarters, uh, both governmental and political uh, industrial, corporate, 
business and so forth, um, religious, economic. I mean, you list any any category you want, and there are there are leadership positions, and in some instances there are leaders. Uh, what makes a good leader? Service. Plain and simple, being able to serve the constituent that you are leading. I wake up every day with the idea of how can I make my team's job easier? How can I do um, help them and equip them and strengthen them in their in their tasks? Give them the school, the education and the the tools to do a, a fantastic job. If if you don't serve those who follow you. You're just a guy who um, is autocratically or a, a woman who's autocratically telling people what to do. And, and I think that crisis you see right now is exactly um, the symptom of it, whether it's the government who forgets that they serve the people mm -hmm. or in the boardroom who forgets that they serve the shareholders or the leaders of corporations who forget that they serve their employees uh, this idea that we are just to do what they tell us to do because somehow they think they're smarter than us is it is um, it, it's not tenable. People are not going to put up with it um, very long. Um, and and the truth is, they're wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody knows my life better than I know my life, and I still don't know it that well. And I don't know your <laughs> and I and I don't know your life all that well. I mean, I you know. I know roughly where you live and those kinds of things, but I don't know your life. And to, and to try to sit here from Northern Nevada and tell you how to live and how to serve and how to do and how to be um, is ludicrous. And that's what we're experiencing, um, especially on the coast from the East and the West coast. You're, you're seeing a lot of that. And what you're also seeing, I think it's really fundamental to the problem of why we see so much division because the rest of the country is sometimes with derision, they call us the red the flyover states. Um, they reject that. They reject people telling them how to do it, how to live, I, and and they should. Um, and and that same thing applies to the in the boardroom or in the business uh, in the business sector. We don't. We think we have an idea um, of what's going on with our employees or our shareholders, but we don't. And we have to have a little humility. Mm. I have to say that uh, in my positions over the years that I've been doing this, um, I've had the position predominantly as operations manager of different radio stations, both in Phoenix and here in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And I took on attack very early in the early 80s. Uh, I referred to it <clears throat> and, and I, you know, no disrespect to anybody, not to offend anyone. But I referred to it as my Hitlerian phase. And I did just exactly what you said you don't want to do. I told people what to do. Because I'm the operations manager, Don it. Yeah. And I got challenged by one of my employees. says, I'm not going to do it. I said, why? Why not? It's because you're telling me to do it. So I rephrased it. I said, okay. Um, I need you to, and I think it was like, you know, clean the bathroom because we didn't have a cleaning service out at the transmitter site. Mm -hmm. And I cleaned the bathrooms as well on my shift. Um, we need to have the bathrooms clean so that when we have programmers in here or other people, we need to have it clean for them. 
So, all right, I'll do it for that reason, but not because you tell me to. Right. After that confrontation, I sat back and I thought about my style. I said, I got to stop doing that. That's not working, obviously. So I started to come at it from a whole different perspective. Here is the plus about <clears throat> all of these jobs I've had as operations manager. I was also doing exactly the same job that everybody I was supervisor over. Right. And I never looked at it as uh, them working for me. I looked at it as me working with them. That's right. And so I, like I said, that was a very short-lived phase. <laughs> Thank goodness. But we have a lot of people in, a, in leadership and non-leadership positions. They want to hold on to their territory as if it belongs to them. And yet they're an employee of said business, company, corporation. Um, I find that interesting uh, that people want to – I don't want to hold on to my territory. I found out early on, uh, Mike, that – if I hold on to the knowledge that I have and I don't share it with anybody else, I'm, I'm going to keep it close to the vest because I don't want anybody else to know how to do this. I can't move on and do anything new. Right. Do we see that as a problem of territorial employees, you know, all the way up the corporate ladder or business ladder or company ladder? Uh, is that still a major problem that we're having trouble with? Or are it, some of the leaders in business starting to read some of the books, let's just say, that your, your publishing company, which, by the way, is leadership, uh, and I just had it in my front of me here, leadershipbooks.com. Uh, do you see them uh, as starting to read some of these books that say, look, you've got to relate to your employees? That's why I always loved Undercover Boss. Yes. So it's a big um, – it's a big – area of learning and growth, especially if you've reached middle management at some level and, um, and you're finding that you're not achieving what you think you ought to achieve because the, the staff around you, the people that are, are supposed to be following you are, are being resistant. And I, I tell this story, you know, the other day, now remember, who do we serve? That's the question. Ah. Who do we serve? Okay. So, so we always have to keep that in mind. So the other day I was at a restaurant and a, a young woman walked by that worked there. And I asked her, she was not my uh, waitress or my server, I should say. And the way the server I hadn't seen in a while. And, and uh, I'd actually wanted a, a cup of coffee to go along with my meal. My mm -hmm. meal had been served and now I wanted to have something to go along with it. So as she walked by, I asked her, could you get me a cup of coffee, please? And she walked over to the manager and I saw this happen. She walked over to the manager and the manager chastised her and pointed at the ground and told her, your job is to sweep the floor. And you know what I never got was a cup of coffee. Ooh. Now, now I don't understand her infrastructure of what this, this manager was doing inside of, of this restaurant, but I can tell you, that the the person that they serve which is the customer didn't get served all right 
And because of her hierarchical, patriotic, or, or sorry, paternal kind of overview of um, of her leadership style, mm-hmm. she didn't she didn't serve her customer, and and that will eventually get you. That will eventually eat your business alive. And so the, the idea of who are we serving here um, is the most important piece, I think, for a leader to understand. And, and to stay loyal to that service, if you're serving the, the, um, the stockholders of your business, the shareholders of your business and the mm-hmm. board, then that's what, who you need to be thinking about um, with every decision that you make. And so we can't really be upset with the boardroom who is making decisions for, in favor for their shareholders. Um, and it's the executive leadership that should be making decisions for their staff and employees that's best serving them and the staff and employees should be uh, making decisions that's best serving their customer and the government's no different you know we have a leadership right now who just does whatever they want and they're not very concerned with um well the broader reach i should say they're concerned with a sector of the american society to serve but they're not they're not interested in a broader reach of serving the entire country and that's what they're there for. Yeah. And, tr- you know, even those that are represent us, that's what they're there for is to represent, you know, again, I'm in Northern Nevada. So they're here to represent me in Northern Nevada. They're, mm-hmm. they're there to mm-hmm. represent you in California. Um, and they're not doing that. Yeah. And so this idea and it all came, you know, I read a lot of books and I, I, I hear some of the best uh, and experience some of the best voices in leadership. Okay, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. and it still boils down to who are we serving? Yeah, not who are we controlling? Who are we serving? Yeah, and of course, yeah. we here on uh, this program, we are serving the listener. We're trying to right. serve them information that will help to better their lives. Uh, new paradigms for a new world is sort of our slogan, giving people choices and knowledge of those choices. Defining that basically. A lot of times we don't know what choices we have available to us until we are educated on the, the reality of those choices. You've got a fork in the road. Yeah, well, how many fingers or tans, I, I forget what the heck the, the name of the prongs on the fork are called, uh, but nonetheless, you might have two, you might have three, you might have four. But if let's just say there's a, a heavy fog that's descended... You can't see those other forks, those other possible choices that you could make until the fog lifts. And that's what we're trying to do is lift the fog here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. I'm here with Mike uh, uh, Stickler. Stickler, he is uh, with the um, uh, uh, leadershipbooks.com website. We hope that you will... uh, Find out more about that work by going to leadershipbooks.com. And uh, Mike, what I find interesting about what you said in terms of who do we serve? Um, a lot of people in, in, again, all of the categories that we've already talked about, down through the years. And, uh, you know, it may be this in a, on a governmental level. It might be this administration. But quite honestly, Every administration we have ever had, at least in my short 62 years on the planet, uh, has kind of been that way. You know, they're serving themselves in some fashion and a certain segment of the population, but not all. And there's a difference between 
serving and pleasing. You know, they say that you yes. you can uh, please some of the people some of the time, uh, but you cannot please all of the people all of the time. That's different from serving the people. And I think one of the biggest problems that we have, especially governmentally, uh, is the fact that a lot of our those that are supposed to represent us, they are only in office to get reelected. That's all they're there. Right. After they get elected, it's now time to start planning for the next election. It doesn't matter if it's two years or six years away. It's time to start planning and then uh, making sure that you get just the right photo ops. So that people will see that, oh, look, they're doing, look, they're standing next to a bridge that's being built or they're, whatever it is. One of the, and I mentioned it before about uh, uh, the, the undercover boss television program, which right. I, I unfortunately, because I've always worked for small stations, I could never do that, you know. <clears throat> um, right. But I've always found it, I was always so impressed by the surprise and awe of the one going undercover at what they would find as they would travel around to the different departments or franchises or, or whatever uh, outlets of their company they had. Uh, surprised because they didn't know, surprised because they start to, got, they start to get to know the people who are actually making the money that they, the corp, the head who's undercover, uh, are, are, so to speak, raking in. And this is what has frustrated, I know, a lot of people about a lot of CEOs who get these annual bonuses. And I sit there going, well, what did they do? Did right. they do what the people down at the bottom of the pyramid uh, we're doing in terms of justifying this multi-million dollar bonus, and I, I have to say I don't think so. You know, I, I, I just don't know what it is that they do. And then, of course, you, you, you see the separation of the classes, and they maintain that. Uh, and I'm not saying that <clears throat> okay that the CEO's office should be, uh, let's say, in the in the front lobby of the Starbucks. Okay, I'm not saying that. Sure, sure. Uh, certainly, you know, there there is a separation in that regard between those who make the decisions on how the place is going to look and what they're going to serve, da, da 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 and then those people that are working there. The people that should be making the money are the people that are doing the serving, like the, the waitress that you had an experience with. She should be the one making the money, not the guy at the top, because she's doing the work. She's doing the serving. Do you think that many businesses are starting to get that? And again, I, I understand, too, about, you know, raising minimum wages and and all of that. And that sounds like a great idea, but somebody's got to pay for it. And who's going to pay for it? The consumer. Those being yeah. served. Uh, but let's we won't go there. But let's talk about this aspect of uh, some companies are actually starting to recognize and acknowledge the value of the people they have working for them, or I'd like to say with them. Yeah, I, that's a challenging um, position. I'm about the same age as you are. And one of the challenges, you know, we went through the 80s and the 90s where we did a lot of uh, corporate sharing where the, where the employee would become 
part of the ownership of the company. We did a lot of different kinds of things in those days to really, um, to really to, to have them be inclusive and, and uh, you know, the proverbial, um, the rising tide raises all boats. So if we're making more money, they're making more money and everybody's is growing. And, and you know, what's funny is it, it didn't work. Retention didn't change. Um, the the people still came and went. And mm-hmm. now as we've come into the the younger generation, when we talk about the millennials and, and, and those, they, they change pretty regularly. They, they don't even think twice about changing from job to job. And here's where I think it makes a difference, where it really makes a difference. And you, you alluded to it a little bit ago is about serving those that are working around you and pleasing those that are working around you. Now, if you, you know, another area of leadership that we have, Richard, is in our home, mm-hmm. whether you're, whether you're um, mom or dad, um, you have a, a responsibility to serve. And, and that doesn't always mean, especially with your children, pleasing them. Okay. Mm-hmm. They can't, they, they don't necessarily have the full picture of life in front of them yet. So trying to please them is actually very dangerous and detrimental to them. And so what I love about your picture of, of the undercover boss is here's the boss who's getting down into the trenches and really figuring out, okay, well, what's going on here? You know, we implemented these procedures um, in order to best serve, or they believe that in order to best serve whatever uh, constituency they're trying to serve. And then they get into it and they find out it's not being executed, all right, the way they think. And so it, what I love about that show most is it causes the, the leader, whoever they are, to, to really do some, if they're humble enough, to do some, some um, introspection on themselves to say, have we really done this well? Because obviously we're not executing, at least some of them are not executing what we think is going to happen. And then that has to happen more and more. Um, you know, I don't care if you're the CEO of Chevron Oil or the um, or who you are. You need to start to really get down and figure out, are the troops really doing what we asked them to do? And, and what do I have to do with the enormous power that I have? As you know, I'm speaking as if I'm the CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I have to do with my enormous power to help them all get on the right track um, to actually execute the way we want it to do, not to please them necessarily, but um, to please our customer, whoever that is. Um, and, and those are the challenges that, you know, the larger the business is, and that's what leadership and why, why leadership books exists and why the trainers and, and people that equip that um, in leadership try to help those men and women be able to do that. So there's a more holistic approach. Mm-hmm. And with that um, comes a better balance of quality of life and a quality of income. Uh, by the way, I think one of the unintended consequences of this whole pandemic is there is a, a major shift going on right now with people wanting to work from home. Uh, I was just reading this, some statistics on a, a, a tech firm in the Bay Area, which you know, told everybody that they had to work 60% of the time in the office and the, and the entire staff said, nope. And so they went, okay, 20% in the office. 
<laughs> they started negotiating with with their own staff because because they've come to the realization that the staff working from home is more productive it's better it's a better work-life balance there's a lot of pieces that are going on that they never considered before and and uh and those i'll i make a prediction to you those ceos who who um listen to their employees are going to have a better retention level to their employees and more productive and happy employees which they're not necessarily getting more money in a way they are but what they're really getting is a better life and that's what they that's what this generation is looking for mm. when it comes to staff mike stickler is my guest and uh leadershipbooks.com is the website we certainly hope that you will uh go there and check this out we've got a whole lot more to talk about as far as leadership is concerned here on tell me your story i'm richard dugan your host and i do greatly appreciate the time that uh, uh you are giving us mike to talk about these kinds of things because um one of the one of the aspects of this that you touched upon the CEO says, uh, how can I, with the power that I have, and at the same time, you also uh, elucidated that the CEO has no power that the employees don't give him or her. That's right. If, if <laughs> he says, That's I right. have the power up here on this throne here, we're going to work 60% in the office and 40% at home, <laughs> and the employees take their power back and say, uh, nope, not going to happen, Tim. And I realize that it's a rather controversial subject, unions, yep. but there is a way to unionize without actually unionizing when the employees get together and they say, look, you know, it's not that we're dissatisfied with our jobs, but certain conditions have got to be met when it comes to uh, this this uh, this situation, you know, this, this you know, and, and, and as such, it's kind of along the lines of I was thinking about this in terms of where I uh, one of the first jobs in radio that I had. We worked out at the transmitter, and at that time, back in 1979-1980, it was out in what we called the South 40 in West Phoenix, and actually it was a small community called Tolleson, Arizona, and it was uh, literally on a seven-acre plot that was bordered on the south side by the Southern Pacific Railroad tracks Hmm. and farm fields, and um, we had to keep the building clean on the inside at least. Uh, and, um, and it wasn't that hard of a job to do because it wasn't that, that wasn't that big of a building, you know? Right. Uh, but we, that's what we did. And and that's how we, uh, that's because it was our home for eight hours a day. That was when you worked eight hour shift, uh, in radio. And, uh, I remember an experience that I had with my uh, general manager and he and I had worked on re redesigning the interior. Uh, uh, we created a whole uh, a construction company came in and put up some walls and so forth and so on. And then we we put up the uh, the the, sh- the the counter space to put the equipment on. And we had this one cabinet up against the back wall underneath a window. And he said to me, he says, "Now don't you move that unless you get my permission," which I thought was an interesting and bizarre directive. And 
one day while I was training another gentleman who became a very good friend of mine who has unfortunately since passed, um, I moved that cabinet because I was vacuuming the floor. Guess who came in the front door? Yeah. Reamed me a new one. Took me into the transmitter room and I thought he was going to punch me. And I swear I thought I was going to get hit. I couldn't sleep for three days. I finally called him. I says, we have to talk. I need you to come out here and we have to talk. He came out and I told him, do you know that I completely forgot the reason why I had moved that cabinet when you were yelling at me? And now I remember I was vacuuming. I was cleaning the station and I was going to put it back where it was. But you showed up and interrupted the process. Right. Could not have been more apologetic, which I appreciated. But if he had waited to find out why I had moved the cabinet in the first place, none of this would have happened. Yeah, and that's that's a subject matter that um, is really near and dear to my heart. Is is this idea of listening to understand instead of listening to respond? We, we have this tendency, especially leaders, we have this tendency to approach a subject that we're not, we think is going, is going the wrong way. We ask the question and then we're, we're actually, while the answer is coming, and, you know, the other party is giving us the answer, we're formulating the response in our head. We're not listening to what the person is saying. And so then we just burst into it. I see this in, in marriages. I see it in employee, staff, employee relationships. And, and we got to shut our mouths long enough to and actively listen to understanding what that person says. And, and we're getting worse and worse at it as a society where we used to quietly listen to someone's opinion or idea and then we would respond to it. No, no. Now we just blurt out. It's like it's like we're all on a TV show now. We all just blurt out at one another what what we think about that. And it. It's um, a horrible way to communicate, and it is a horrible. It's even a, a more horrible way to try to run an organization if you don't take the time to listen. If he'd have just listened to you for one minute and realized that what you had done, because he created so much pressure in the room, you couldn't even remember yourself why you moved the stupid cabinet. Mm-hmm. And and instead, if you'd have just sat there and, and he approached it, you know, and just said, "Well, Richard, I'm not sure. Is there a reason you moved this cabinet?" And you said, "Well, yeah, I'm vacuuming." And he actually heard that mm-hmm. he would have he would have had a response that would have been much different. And, yeah. and that's where we're failing as leaders is not listening to the people that are around us. Yeah. Um, and you know what? Maybe they did make a mistake. OK, but it, you're never going to help them learn not to make that mistake again. If you just jump on your soapbox box and start you know, berating people, that's just abusive anyway. Yeah. Well, um, I, and yeah. so, yeah. Michael Stickler is my guest. Uh, Leadershipbooks.com is the website. I'm Richard Dugan, and you are listening to Tell Me Your Story. We are bringing you new paradigms for a new world. We're looking for those new ways of living the old ways. Just look around you. They aren't working. Uh, So we've got to come up with those new ways, and Mike is here to help us out. Uh, You know, it's interesting, too, uh, based upon that example I gave you, um, two things happened. One prior to that event that happened to me where I was on the other end where my general manager was at that time, where I was on the phone with this woman 
She was the principal of a school who was uh, she was supposed to be doing these little vignettes for us uh, that mm-hmm. I would record and, and produce and so forth. And I'd been trying for two weeks to get her and I finally got her. But I was I was fit to be tied. And I said some things to her on the phone. Nobody deserves to be spoken to the way I spoke to this woman. And I remember after getting off the phone with her that my boss, the same one, had told me he does not like surprises. So I immediately called him and I owned up to what I had done. And he said, first of all, you are on probation for 60 days. Second of all, you're going to call that woman back and you're going to apologize. As soon as I got off the phone with him, I called the woman back and I apologized. And then I heard her ripping me a new one for five minutes. When she was done, I apologized again. And um, I, I, I don't know if I wished her a nice day or what have you. Uh, and, uh, you know, I said, nobody deserves to be spoken to you the way I spoke to you. I am very sorry, blah, 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 blah. And we, we ended. Obviously, she didn't do those vignettes anymore with us because I had damaged that relationship. Sure. But, the, but the second example was after the, the, the cabinet-moving incident years later uh, at another radio station where I was working. Uh, the company that I was working for was running a news talk station. The religious station where that first general manager was was Mm -hmm. purchased by the corporation that ran the news talk station I was working for. So they moved us all into the same suite together. Here I am with that general manager again. We were redesigning the news talk control room. I was in charge of making sure that everything went properly. And the information that I had received from outside sources regarding our equipment and software was that, no, you don't want to do that because it's not ready yet. You don't have the coding. But the chief engineer said, no, it'll work. It'll work. And I said, well, you may think it'll work, but I haven't, based upon the information I have been given, this is, we're not going to move forward until we get the coding. I was called into the general manager's office. Now, not the, not the one from the Christian station, but the one from the news talk station. But the one from the Christian station was sitting in the conference room with us. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> basically, I was following the directives uh, told to me by the software company. And so I sat in the room as the Christian station manager sat in his chair listening to the news talk general manager circling me in the conference table around and around and around ranting and raving i sat in what they call open body posture you know you both feet on the floor hands on your knees i had to do everything i could do to keep from laughing (laughs) because first of all having had the the experience with the christian manager I, i i knew i hadn't done anything wrong I was doing my job by protecting the station and making sure we stayed on the air based sure. upon the information I had at the time. And he told me that the chief engineer, who is one of the best chief engineers in all of the country, just quit. Like, like that's my fault that he quit. Right. You know, he's got very thin skin and I never uttered a bad word to him or about him. <laughs> and this guy went around the table, around and around, and I just, I, everything I could do to keep from laughing. And I, when I left the room, I felt, I felt really good. 
then I finally got the information from the software company. Oh, well, actually, we misspoke. You could hook it up now. It's just that the the hardware won't function 100%. It'll function 80%, and it'll give you what you want until we get you the coding for the 100%. So the chief engineer was correct, but because I was instructed to make sure that this went smoothly, the, the way they were phrasing it from the software company. So there's another situation where people aren't listening. And this is back in the, in the 2000s, early 2000s. Oh, yeah. How do we overcome that? How do we, as both managers, supervisors, and employees, or those being managed or supervised, how do we overcome that breakdown in communication and by the way in broadcasting i've learned we broadcasters behind the scenes are some of the worst communicators <laughs> so as a as a leader the first thing you have to you have to uh, understand is what's the chief form of communication for the team that you have with us around you so i remember um Years ago, I had a gal who was a phenomenal writer, but she she was kind of awkward in in verbal communication. She was a little insecure. She was uh, she didn't like to stand up in front of people, and make presentations, and those kinds of things. And we were she and I were in kind of an emotionally charged conversation about her work performance, and and uh, and I could tell that that was difficult for her because she doesn't do verbal communication as well as she does written communication. So I, I just said to her, I said, would you do me a favor? I know you're trying to express your feelings here. Would you do me a favor and just um, go back to your desk and write them out for me and, and give me an opportunity to read them and then we'll discuss them. And I could see right at that moment that, that she just kind of, the pressure just came off of her and she went in and within minutes I got her response. Well, other people are, are verbal communicators and I'm one of those. I prefer to communicate verbally. So let's sit down and talk with that person and give them the uninterrupted time that they want, the uninterrupted time that they deserve and they want. I, I, I'm one of those, and I prefer not to have what I used to call water cooler conversations, where somebody just, you know, brings up a subject matter by the water cooler and then and then wants you to give them an answer. Because I, I can't ask the clarifying questions. I can't think deeply about it. I can't um, get into the things that we want to do, or what they're really asking me to do um, in a short amount of time. And so I don't, I fail at it. I often make bad decisions. And so in the same way, if, if we get a hold of how the person that you're working with communicates and then try to allow them, especially in the more difficult types of communication we're faced with, Allow them to use their 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 uh, you know their primary way to communicate with you, and then take the time to genuinely listen. You, you we all have to just be a lot more intentional and quit you know thinking we're all on uh, you know um, virtual Facebook you know where we're just <laughs> leaving nasty nasty you know <laughs> snotty comments at one another yeah trying to be witty and we're failing but we're trying to be witty and all this and instead take the time you know one of the things i do here's another good practice is if i don't um 
if I don't know somebody very well, or I suspect that we have an opposing view on something, I start out with something personal. Uh, I'll say something with, so Richard, are you, are, uh, are you a dad? Um, you know, how many kids do you have? Or um, I try to find a, a point that we can, a commonality that we can both um, start with before we get into that highly charged confrontational piece. Uh, I also, uh, with, with everyday communication, I, when I talk to my assistants every day, I start out with, first thing I say is, Simone, how are you doing? You, you know, things going okay with you today? What'd you do over the weekend? I start with a personal connection first mm -hmm. before we get right to the business. But see, we're, we're so busy doing this fast-paced nonsense Facebook nonsense that we're not actually making a whole connection with people. Um, and, and if we do, if we just would get it in the practice and be more intentional in what we're doing, we would communicate much better to one another. We would have the respect that we actually want, often mistakenly demand instead of earn. Um, and uh, we don't, we'll all get to the same place that we want to, whatever that goal is that we're trying to achieve. Mm. Um, you know, whether it's making more money or making a difference if you've got a nonprofit, so maybe you're trying to make a difference in your community or um, see li people's lives change whatever you're trying to do as a goal you know everybody will get there if you if you're just a little bit more intentional about it and by the way that doesn't mean have more meetings <laughs> okay. so if so if anybody that's a manager just heard me and said, oh, okay, Mike says have more meetings. That's not what I said. Yeah. Okay. Uh, me worthless meetings um, are, are probably the greatest way of telling someone you're not interested in what they actually have to say. Yeah. Um, good, solid communication and just being practiced at it. Yeah. We have to be practiced at it. Mike Stickler is my guest, uh, publisher and author as well, and leadershipbooks.com is the website. And this is Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and we are here uh, discussing leadership. Uh, we could uh, certainly uh, move into some other areas, but you brought up something very interesting, <clears throat> uh, especially in terms of... Uh, Sort of, sort of knowing your audience of sorts. Uh, I was um, back home in Phoenix uh, for my uh, my sister's memorial back in April, and um, uh, we had gone to the memorial myself, my brother, uh, my mother. Uh, she had driven us, <clears throat> and when we came back, it was my niece, my mother, and myself, and we went back to my parents' condo where my brother and I were staying. And as, I, as you noticed, my brother was not with us on the return trip. He stayed at my sister's house for a little longer. We get home, and my dad uh, was not able to make it to the memorial. He's, he's got some, some issues in that regard, but he was able to watch it on Zoom, which was really great. Uh, he was able to watch the memorial. And uh, so we get home. We're there talking around the dining room table, and he comes walking up, and he says, Where's Michael? And, and I said, well, uh, and my brother loves to joke around, okay? He, he's the guy who, I don't know whether it's a defense mechanism on his part or he's just trying to be the center of attention or what the reason is, but he's always making jokes about all of us and so forth. So I thought I would try with my father, who's 91 this year, and he comes up, where, where, where's your brother, Michael. Uh, and I said, well, Dad, I'm so sorry. We had to sell him to put gas in the, tr in the car. 
<laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. My dad <laughs> jumped all over me, said, look, when I ask a question, I want an answer. I said, I'm sorry, I apologize. Um, he stayed back, you know, he stayed back at, at Mary's, da 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 Later that evening, as I'm making up the couch in the living room to go to sleep, uh, my brother got the, the extra bedroom, and I said, that was fine. My father comes in, and he apologized. He says, I am so sorry for getting so upset with you. It was nice. I, I, I didn't take offense. I didn't take it in when he jumped on me like that. I just figured, oh, I crossed the line. I'll back it off, apologize, and, and move on. Right. So I took him by the, the shoulders, and I said, Dad, you will always be my father, and I will always love you, and we're good. And we gave a little hug there, and then he went off to bed. And it, what it, that well, first of all, what it told me was, I'll leave the jokes to my brother and let him deal with my dad, you know, kind of yeah. thing. Uh, but it also showed me that my father, even at the age of 91, with the level of frustration having ha- had to bury one of his daughters, mm-hmm. um, still, you know, he, he, he was obviously he was on edge at that particular moment, but also recognizes when he has sort of, you know, crossed a line, yeah. Even with his children, so um, so anyway, I think that even within the context of a family, I think it's really important when you when you take a look at the dynamics. I mean, we had uh, four sisters, a brother, and two parents in a little over a thirteen hundred square foot brick three bedroom one bathroom home five women in a one bathroom home (laughs) and we all came out alive yeah um you know what go ahead what's what's amazing about that story first off is your your dad's self-awareness at 91 okay so so one of the things about being a leader is we have to have a a pretty high level of self-awareness now we all make mistakes. We, you know, when pressure is happening around us, and in this case, um, his daughter is passed. Um, he's he's emotionally um, trying to probably keep that somewhat contained. Um, you uncharacteristically started, a, you know, making a joke. He didn't think it was funny because he was just on the edge. And then and then being being self aware enough to apologize. And, and I don't think we uh, leaders take um, enough time to, to really get self-aware of our own situation that's going on. I, I remember when I was younger, when my kids were at home, my, my oldest is 40 now and I have grandchildren. So, but when they were at home, high school, middle school age, you know, I was working all day and I would come home. And they they would be almost waiting, not literally, but almost waiting at the door to come bring me something or show me something or tell me a story or whatever. And and my wife was kind of in that place too. And I was always I always would stiff arm him as I came through the door, you know, maybe not physically, but emotionally stiff arm him. And then I I would go in the back room and change my clothes, get out of my work clothes, get into something comfortable. Um, usually get a little bit to drink and then I would talk to him. Well, my wife said, why do you do that? Why are you stiff arming them? And I, I didn't really know why. And what I figured out, she and I figured out is what 
I had to do this transition. I don't know why, but I had Mike's business, you know, mind on and my suit and all of that. And as I came through the door, this is what I had on. And I needed to physically transition, take off my clothes, maybe grab a beer, settle down, put, you know, put on some comfortable clothes, come out and now transition to family, Mike. And, and I wasn't self-aware enough back then in my thirties, I wasn't self-aware enough to realize I had to do that. And it was through the guidance with my wife, helping me understand that this is what was going on and how I was presenting myself, um, helped me understand how I behave. So, uh, um, as a leader, you know, we're, we're not stopping to recognize what's informing our feelings and our decision process. It could be anything. It could be um, not eating. It could be um, pressure from the last meeting you were in. Um, maybe you got some bad news from outside of the, the business realm, wherever you're working. You know, lots of things could happen. Um, and um and really being self-aware about what's going on and then when you mess up and we all do quickly apologize mm -hmm. as fast as you become aware that you messed up um just secondarily as fast go and apologize so as soon as you're aware that you you messed up go and do it and and then if the person as you explained about that one customer or that didn't wasn't happy and reamed you out well, that's on them now. You mm -hmm. did your part. I apologized. And if it was sincere, you did all you could do. And if she wants to berate you after that, well, that's on them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe what she should have done after that was hang up and apologize. You know, come back and apologize to you later. But you did your part. Yeah. You know, we're supposed to seek forgiveness, not get forgiveness. Right. Okay. Right. We're supposed to seek it, but we're not, we don't have to get it that we did our part. Right. You know, what otherwise about, that person controls you with it. Right. What about the thoughts of self-forgiveness? Um, that's often really a little harder, but it, it's very much the truth that the realization is that you have, again, back to being a leader, you know, when I really mess up, it, um, and it costs the company money or it costs, um, you know, my reputation or whatever. I confess and, and tell people, you know, this is the part that I did. And then I forgive myself for it and I move on. I'm not going to carry a bunch of um, shame behind it. And I think you have to do the first one first. In other words, confess it, say it, you know, look, I did this. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then once that's out in the air, it becomes a lot easier to forgive yourself. If you try to hide it and you try to pretend like it didn't happen or whatever, that that shame just gobbles you up. Yeah. And shame, by the way, says to you, I am what I am and I cannot change. Well, if you're hiding what happened by not just getting it out into the air, um, shame has a tendency to just build upon itself to where you're, I am what I am and I cannot change and I feel terrible about this and I can't forgive myself because I should have done better and on and on and on of the things that we go through. Um, and, and recognize that others might not forgive you. Well, that doesn't mean you should feel shame yourself just because you, we all mess up. Mm -hmm. We all mess up. And some of us have consequences. Maybe the mess up and your consequences, you get fired. Okay. 
maybe the consequences of um, you go to jail, maybe the consequences, but, but, you know, um, failing forward is the gift here, you know, is to have an opportunity to reinvent yourself and, and learn from your stakes and going forward. That's the gift yeah. in messing up. Mike Stickler's my guest. Leadershipbooks.com is the website, and you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it's really a pleasure to have you here on the program, uh, Mike, to talk about this aspect of leadership. It's, I think, a very important element that we are all leaders at some time throughout our lives. Uh, we're all sometimes asked to take on a leadership role That's right. along the way in our lives, and it would be really helpful if we had some some guidance, and uh, you provide that through the work that you are doing, both as a publisher and an author, as well as a, a leader, a leadership mentor or counselor or, or advisor, shall we say. <clears throat> and we are greatly appreciative of the time that you have given us, uh, and I thank you so much uh, for uh, sharing what you've shared here today. I do have three final questions that I'd like to ask you. I ask all of my guests uh, through on this program, and um, uh, you may have answered them during the interview, but I like to ask them directly, even though the answers will probably be the same. Uh, even in the context of the three questions, they may sound similar, but uh, you can answer them in any way you wish to. But before I ask you those questions... I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We are here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., <clears throat> Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and Wednesday mornings for our special edition of Tell Me Your Story. And we stream live at those times at richarddugan.com with podcasts both at richarddugan.com as well as SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations across the Internet. We also ask that you go to YouTube and watch these interviews. That's right, we have a YouTube channel, Tell Me Your Story, Richard Dugan. We also ask that you subscribe, not to raise my numbers of subscribers. No, I don't care about that. But so that you will be notified of new interviews that are posted throughout the days and weeks ahead. So uh, please do that. Also, participate in the Decade of Perfect Vision, the 2020s, uh, as uh, we ask you to go within and listen to that still small voice of encouragement and insight and inspiration and who knows? Maybe even a laugh or two. Uh, it's 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 your inner it's it's your inner life, folks. Uh, make it what you will and enjoy it. I know that I do. And also, if you can support us financially, we'd greatly appreciate that. You might be laughing at this. That's fine. Uh, we have a PayPal account. It's there for your security as well as ours. Any amount is welcome. We'll even take energetic support as well. With that, let me ask <clears throat> the first of the three questions: Who is Mike Stickler? Uh, first and foremost, I'm a child of God. I'm an author. Um, I'm a guy who um, uh, desires deep and meaningful relationships. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? What I love about leadership books and being an author is that um, it we really the books that we offer really do make your life your family your business a little bit better and that's what i that's what gets me up in the morning and helps me keep focused on what i do and finally 
what is your life's purpose? Um, this is it's much deeper than a simple answer, but uh, my life's purpose is um, to serve God and to serve people. That's my life's purpose. And Mike, I want to thank you again for joining us. Uh, this has been a very meaningful, informative, and uh, uh, enlightening uh, perspective. And uh, I hope that people will take it to heart. I know I will because, as I said before, we are all going to be leaders at some time in our life, uh, if only leaders of self. Uh, but uh, that would be with a small S. Thank you very much. <laughs> so thank you again for joining us. This has been a great uh, experience. Thank you. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to Lal and Jeanette, I am listening.